as you take out your worship guide uh, to, to take notes and, and follow along tonight, we just want to jump right in and, and get into the particulars of the book of Judges. And, and even though it's a hot mess dumpster fire of depravity, uh, there are bright shining spots along the way uh, of God's grace and even of his provision. Uh, taking care of some particulars, it's helpful to know uh, just some of the, the demographics, if you will, uh, of this book. The author of Judges is actually unstated. Judges has no recorded author. Uh, Later Jewish tradition would attribute authorship of Judges to the prophet Samuel. You'll know that 1st and 2nd Samuel come after, uh, uh, so it's Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and then 1st and 2nd Samuel. Uh, But really there's no certainty as to what human person penned its words. Now certainly we know that the inspiration of the Holy Spirit through human authors is, is what resulted in the book of Judges. But which human author wrote it, we don't know. Uh, although some would say it was the prophet Samuel. Thinking about the date of the, of the events of Judges and the date of its writing, uh, the events of Judges take place from sometime around 1400 B.C. after uh, Israel has been uh, brought out of slavery in Egypt and after the 40-year wandering period and after the short period of conquest of the land of Canaan that Joshua leads, and then continuing for about 400 years up until sometime around 1000 B.C. Uh, before Saul and then later David would be crowned king of Israel. That's the date of the events of Judges, about 400 years between the end of the wilderness wandering and the beginning of the age of the kings. The date of its composition, the date that Judges was actually written, could be no sooner than its final recorded event in the mid-11th century B.C. Um, There are some things, uh, uh, clues in the context of Judges that may say that its final form was finished uh, maybe uh, during the Davidic reign, uh, but we're not for certain. So, The soonest it could have been composed was uh, around the time of David's rise to the throne. If I were to summarize Judges in just a few sentences, uh, it would be this. Judges is the history of the people of Israel over the 400 years between the entrance to the promised land, where we saw a few months ago when we looked at Joshua, and the reign of King Saul. It's a period wherein Israel is not ruled by any one person, but by several individual judges. These are not kings, not queens. Um, they, are, they are judges, people who sort of sit in authority and judge cases of individuals in Israel. Um, judges who come from different tribes, different Israelite tribes, uh, and some of whose uh, time of judgment overlaps with others. The history of Israel and judges is a 400-year cycle of sin, repentance, and deliverance. Sin, repentance, deliverance. Sin, repentance, deliverance. Over and over and over again. And the final verse of Judges, Judges 21-25, is a perfect summary of the entire narrative of this book. Judges 21-25 says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. You can imagine the mess that would come as a result of that. There are four major themes, and the major themes of Judges actually... Uh, lay out for us the cycle that we see repeated in Judges. These are the major themes. Israel responds to God's blessing with sin. God blesses them, and they say, thank you very much, we'll go our own way. Then God judges the sin of Israel with war from their enemies, or conflict from their enemies. Third, the people repent and cry out for help. They turn from their sin, they see the results of their sinning, and they ask God for help. And then fourth and finally, God gives temporary deliverance through imperfect judges. God gives temporary deliverance through imperfect judges. 
And then that cycle repeats 12 times or so through the course of Judges. As we think about this book in the scope of redemption history, creation, fall, redemption, consummation, creation speaking to God's work in uh, the beginning of Genesis, creating the world and all that is in it for human flourishing, uh, the fall in Genesis 3 where Adam and Eve uh, sin and break their relationship with God, redemption, which is the plan that God is speaking about all throughout the Old Testament, which finds its climax and its fulfillment in the person of Jesus, the Son of God. And consummation being that day at the end of time when God will make all things right. When those who are by faith united to Christ will be uh, raised for eternal life with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. And those who are separated from God in their continued uh, sin will uh, will be forever separated from God uh, in hell. Judges in the scope of redemption history falls kind of in this area of fall and that uh, arrow, that transition time between fall and redemption. Uh, human sin is is on full display in Judges, and the need for redemption, the desire for redemption, uh, already begins to build in this book. So take whatever writing utensil you're, you're using and circle that word fall and that arrow just to the right of it to help you to, to kind of uh, fit this into God's redemptive work throughout the course of the Bible. Now, as you're reading Judges on your own, uh, which can be very entertaining, but also sometimes confusing, here are some things to remember. The genre, the type of literature that Judges is, is historical narrative. Somebody is telling a story, uh, a history of the people of Israel in story form. Like other books of historical narrative, like Genesis, Exodus, uh, Numbers, uh, even Deuteronomy, uh, Joshua especially, there is little in the way of instructive material. God is not giving a lot of commands in the course of Judges. Uh, But much in regard to God's character is revealed in his dealing with Israel. And and much is revealed about the nature of people in this book, just as we look at their lives and their actions and the way those things are characterized. So it's extremely helpful when studying Judges to ask yourself questions like these. What is this text telling me about God and his character? What is this text telling me about who God is? What does this text reveal about what I must believe about God? What do I need to understand uh, uh, about what... What do I need to believe about him? Not just like who he is and what he's like, but what must I believe? What is true about God? And then third, what does this text reveal to me about how God deals with people or with his people? Those are good questions to ask as we work through uh, the book of Judges. Let us begin then uh, this uh, study of Judges, which I have titled The Long Spiral Down, which is exactly what it is. Judges is broken up into three parts, and so in outline we have uh, something that looks like this. In Judges 1 through Judges, the first few verses of Judges 3 is sort of the prologue, it's the introduction to the book, where we see uh, the beginnings of dis- the disobedience of the people of Israel in the promised land. Then from chapter 3, verse 7, through chapter 16, verse 31, we have the period of the Judges, of which there are 12, and this cycle of sin, judgment, repentance, deliverance being replayed over and over and over again in the life of Israel. And then in the final four or five chapters, chapter 17 through 21, we have the epilogue. It's sort of the ending of the book of Judges, which reveals to us, and we'll see this in a moment, the depths of Israel's depravity. Judges ends on a horrible, horrible note, a horrible tone. Well, let's begin, and and our time of study tonight will be structured around those major themes, that cycle of sin, judgment, repentance, and deliverance. So let us look first at uh, the the first part of that cycle in the book of Judges, that Israel responds to blessing, to God's blessing with sin. 
Now, though God had commanded Israel to go into the land of Canaan, which was the land that he promised to give them, and to drive out all of the inhabitants of the land of Canaan in the days of Joshua, the various tribes of Israel failed to do so. And so very quickly, in the, even just the first chapter of Judges, we read these things. Judges 1, 18. Judah, the tribe of Judah, took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain. Uh, chapter 1, verse 27. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shean. Chapter 1, verse 29, Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. Chapter 1, verse 30, Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahalal. Say that five times fast. Chapter 1, verse 31, Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko or the inhabitants of Sidon or of Ahlab or of Akzib or of Helba or of Aphek or of Rahab. Chapter 1, verse 33, Naphtali did not uh, drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh or the inhabitants of Beth Anath. Chapter 1, verse 34. The Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come to the plain. The Amorites persisted in dwelling in Mount Harris. The people of Israel, immediately upon being uh, uh, ushered into the promised land by God, failed to do what God had told them to do, to drive out all of the Canaanites, all of those who lived in the land before them. And we see time after time after time, tribe after tribe after tribe, disobeying what God has said and failing to do what God has commanded. And in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, we see God responding to the sin of the people with a stern word. He says, uh, we read this, Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out from before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. God responds to the sin of the people with a stern word and a warning. He said, you've been disobedient. You haven't done what I've asked you to do. And because of that, the people of Canaan that you have not forced out of the land so that you can take full possession of it, they're going to be a thorn in your side. They're going to be a problem for you as long as you are here. And we see that. In chapter 2, verse 8, Joshua, that strong and courageous leader of the Lord who, who brought Israel into Canaan, dies. And after that, we find written in chapter 2, verses 10 through 12, uh, this. All that generation were also gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did, was, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them, and they bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. And perhaps at this point your mind is returning to Joshua's final words to the people of Israel uh, in the book of Joshua, when he calls upon them to serve the Lord their God who brought them out of Egypt. That famous speech where Joshua says, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And perhaps you're remembering the warning even that Joshua gave to the people if they should desert the Lord for other gods, saying in Joshua 24, 20, if you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And so we find here in Judges chapter 2, the first of a series of failings among the people to follow the Lord. 
In chapter 3, verse 7, chapter 3, verse 12, chapter 4, verse 1, chapter 6, verse 1, chapter 10, verse 6, chapter 13, verse 1, we find a phrase like this repeated in those several places throughout Judges. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They chased after the gods of the people that lived in the land before them. They worshipped idols. And what we find in Israel's response to God's blessing and his deliverance from slavery in Egypt and his blessing and deliverance from other oppressors is that the people of Israel cannot help but turn from the Lord again and again. It seems totally counterintuitive, but when you understand the nature of sin, that it is chronic and persistent, this is what we ought to expect to see in some ways. The people of Israel have no willpower to resist the opiate that is Canaanite gods in the book of Judges. Try as they might, they cannot escape their own sin. And this says so much to us about the terrible state of not only the Israelites' hearts, but our own hearts as well. Consider consider for a moment those sins that you have in your life that you just simply cannot get rid of. Anger, lust, greed, fits of violence, unforgiveness, materialism, toxic relationships. These are the bales that we forsake the one true God for day in and day out. Even as believers, sin is in our hearts as much as it was in the hearts of the Israelites in the book of Judges. We are not on our own any better than they. It's easy to look at judges and, and to look at the people of Israel there and be like, man, y'all, y'all got a problem. You just can't, you guys can't seem to get your stuff together anytime. But if we're honest with ourselves, on page after page after page in the book of Judges, we see ourselves and where our sin takes us. And apart from the grace of God in our lives through faith in Christ, where sin ultimately wants to take us. When we look at this pattern of sin and disobedience against God by the people of Israel and Judges, we need to know this and come to grips with this, that sin is no laughing matter and sin is no little thing. It is nothing short of total treason and betrayal of God who has created us to love and to be loved by him. Sin is serious business, and we learn that in in Judges. But secondly, so Israel first disobeys God. They respond to his blessing with sin. And then the second theme, the the second uh, recurring motif throughout the course of this book is that God judges the sin of Israel. He punishes their sin. In the time of the judges, God punished Israel for their repeated sin of apostasy, of turning away from God with constant war and oppression from their surrounding enemies. Even as he said, I will make them a thorn in your side. Their gods will be a snare for you. The very people the Israelites failed to to displace from the land will be the ones that are oppressing them, that are bringing war upon them, that that are becoming, if you will, agents of God's punishment for their sin. And so in chapter 3, verses 7 through 8, we see God using the Arameans of Mesopotamia. We read this, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God. They served the Baals and the Asheroth. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim eight years. In chapter 3, verses 12 through 14, we see God using the Moabites. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, king of Moab, 18 years. 
In chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, he uses the, the Canaanites themselves. There we read, the people of Israel again did was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in uh, Harosheth Hagoyim. And then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. In chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, we see God using the Midianite people. There we read, The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian for seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds and so on. In chapter 6, verses 6 through 8, we see God using the Ammonites, another tribe of Canaanite peoples, to oppress Israel. We read there, They, that is Israel, forsook the Lord, they did not serve him. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites. And they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years, they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. And then, of course, in chapter 13, God uses the Philistines, the sort of perennial uh, 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 Goliath, if you will, uh, uh, of an enemy to Israel. In Judges 13, 1, we read this, And the people of Israel did again what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. This pattern of sin, which is judged by God with war from their enemies, illustrates for us the very destructive nature of sin. The disobedience to God's command and neglect to worship him only has always had deadly results. And we should not be surprised by this. God promised his people in Deuteronomy 28 uh, verses 25 and following. He said this, the Lord will cause you that. So if the people disobey the Lord, this is part of the covenant curse that will come upon them. The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them. And you shall be a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. And you shall be only oppressed and robbed continually. And there shall be no one to help you. But even further back, even further back than Deuteronomy 28, we see the deadly, the destructive nature of sin in the garden of Eden. When God gave only one command to Adam and Eve, not to eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. For in the day that they ate of it, they would surely die. They eat of that fruit. They don't die immediately, but death then enters the world through that sin. And so as we see God using oppression and war and even death to punish the sins of his people, we need to understand this, that sin against a kind and loving God has always been deadly. It's always been deadly. It's never led to our good, and it's never led to our, to our spiritual growth. But it always deserves the just punishment of a righteous God. God doesn't wink at the sin of the Israelites, and friends, he doesn't wink at our sin either. God justly and righteously judges sin. We come to the third motif, the third sort of uh, uh, aspect of this cycle in the life of Israel. They, they first respond to God's blessing with disobedience and sin. God judges their sin by oppressing them with their enemies. And then third, under the oppression of the enemies, the people repent and cry out for help. This is where we begin to see that kind of shining ray of hope in Judges when the people repent. This third aspect of, ju- of the judges' cycle is, is a respite from the sin and judgment that they face. Repentance, that, <clears throat> that acknowledgement of 
one's own sin and a conscious turning away from it to return to God. Repentance is to the soul that first full breath of air after a long time submerged underwater. It's refreshing. It's life-giving repentance is. The people of Israel repent and cry out to the Lord. After 18 years under Moabite rule, we read in chapter 3, verse 15, the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. In chapter 4, verse 3, after 20 years of Canaanite oppression, we read the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. In chapter 6, verse 6, after seven years under oppression yet again, Israel was brought very low because of Midian, we read, and the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. After 18 years under oppression uh, by the Ammonites, we read this in, um, <clears throat> in Judges 10. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord saying, we have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites, and from, from the Ammonites and from the Philistines? The Sidonians also and the Amalekites and the Maonites oppressed you and you cried out to me and I saved you out of their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go and cry to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in your time of distress. But the people said of Israel said to the Lord, we have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. And so they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And he, that is the Lord, became impatient over the misery of Israel. At their repentance, at their turning away from their worshiping false gods, God becomes impatient about their misery. He's moved to act on their misery to deliver them because of their repentance. Understand this, church. The Lord hates sin, and he is right to judge sin, and he is right to punish sin. But know this, too, that God brings judgment upon his people for their sins in order to bring them to repentance. That's his purpose in all this. He wants them to turn from their sins. He wants them to turn back to him. Know this, that God uses the the means of frustration and defeat to bring about sorrow in the hearts of his people for their disobedience. He uses those things. He he wants to, to work in them through this. What they deserve, what the people of Israel deserve, what all of us deserve in our sin is death. But what God gives them is only a taste of their full punishment by the oppression that comes from their enemies so that they might turn from their sin and run to him for rescue. Even God's judgment ultimately speaks of his grace and his desire to bring us to a point of repentance and trusting in him again. I sometimes wonder how Israel might, would have responded had they, had they lived, had they existed in the 21st century Western world. The motto of our time is a foolhardy version of that Latin phrase, carpe diem, seize the day. Except for the 21st ver- century version is something like YOLO, right? You only live once. So do whatever makes you happiest today. Pleasure and contentment are your conscience. So follow your heart. Be happy. Be the only you that you can be. I wonder, would Israel, in a culture that affirms sin and even exalts sin as a virtue, have been as sensitive to their precarious situation as they were in the day of the judges? Christianity is, if nothing else, about repentance. It's no wonder, then, that many are disappointed by Christianity. While our current society highlights being happy as the greatest virtue, it also encourages those who feel guilty about their sins to do more good stuff to make up for it. Oh, you feel bad about the way you acted to that person, that thing? Just Well, just go, go do some volunteer hours at a soup kitchen. You'll feel better. In fact, every other religion in the world says the same thing. If you feel guilty about your sins, if you're convicted by your conscience, do good stuff and that will outweigh the bad things. 
But Christianity is something altogether different. Christianity doesn't call us to do more, to do more good things, to outweigh our bad things. But Christianity calls sinners to see that there's nothing you can do to cover up your sin. There's nothing you can do to work off your sin. There's nothing you can do to outweigh your sin by other means. Christianity calls sinners to recognize what is needed, that that what is needed is not more work, not more good deeds, but less Less work in the form of ceasing to be good on our own. Less work in the form of admitting our moral failings to God. Less work in the form of turning toward His grace in humility. Just as the Israelites and judges cried out for help and forgiveness, so still does God desire our cries for mercy, our repentance, our turning to His grace and His forgiveness that is to us in Christ. And so still does God delight in answering our cries for help as we repent of our sins and turn to Him. So Israel responds to God's blessing through sin. God judges them by sending their enemies to oppress them. The people of Israel, when oppressed by their uh, uh, surrounding uh, enemies and, and other Canaanite persons, they turn to God in repentance, crying out for help from their sin. And then we have the fourth sort of motif in this cycle that God gives temporary deliverance through imperfect judges. God gives temporary deliverance to his people through imperfect judges. First of all, it's, help us to, it's helpful for us to see that God delivers. That God delivers his people when they cry out for help. Judges records for us the leadership of 12 separate individuals, 12 separate judges. Some of them who are more memorable than others, but all of whom are chosen and sent to deliver Israel from their enemies by God. Look at uh, Judges chapter 3, verse 9. There we read, but when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. Chapter 3, same chapter, verse 15. The people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. Chapter 6, verses 11 and 12. There we read this. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, the Abiezrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Chapter 13, verses 2 and 3. We read this, there was a man, a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. And in verses 24 and 25, continue on, we read there that the woman who was barren bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew and the Lord blessed him and the spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Mahanadan between Zorah and Eshtol. Just as God sends Israel's enemies as agents of his judgment on Israel, so also does he raise up, so also does he send deliverers to the Israelites through the leadership of his appointed and ordained judges. God sends judgment. God also sends deliverers. God is the one who redeems his people from their tragedy. But God also delivers temporarily in the book of Judges. So long as the judges are judging, the Lord is then delivering Israel from their enemies. But that deliverance lasts only so long as the judge is living and leading. 
After their deaths, Israel very quickly again returns to their idolatrous ways until God brings punishment again, leading to their suffering and repentance and then the next judge. This temporary deliverance and punctuated periods of rest and peace in Israel do two things. They reveal two things to us. First, this this continued cycle gives in the reader, in you and I as we read through Judges, a sense of longing for lasting deliverance from sin and the judgment of God. It gives us a desire for this cycle to stop as we see it happen over and over again. But secondly, it highlights God's patience and his grace toward an unrepentant and disobedient people. At any point, God could have chosen to wipe Israel off the map and start over with someone else, but he doesn't. He's patient. He's faithful to the promises that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he's gracious toward an unrepenting people and a disobedient people using the judgment that he sends to bring them to repentance that he might have his relationship with them restored and renewed. God delivers temporarily, but he also delivers temporarily through imperfect judges. There are in the course of this book, 12 judges that lead Israel throughout this 400 year period. They are in order, Othniel, Ehud, Shamgar, Deborah, Gideon, Tola, Jair, Jephthah, Ibzan, Elon, Abdon, and Samson. There will be a test later to see if you remembered all of this. I'm kidding. Very little is said about seven of the 12 judges. They're called the minor judges. And and many of them are referred to in just sort of passing comments. This uh, this person was raised up and he judged for so many years and then he died. And and that's uh, about all that we get for seven of these judges. But for five of them, those who are deemed major judges, we learn much more. These five major judges are Ehud, Deborah, Gideon, Jephthah and Samson. And in their lives, through the course of their lives, we have some of the, the most uh, colorful, if I can put it that way, stories or, or events in the course of Judges. Ehud is a left-handed assassin who kills the oppressing king uh, Eglon by uh, hiding a sword in his cloak and stabbing Eglon, who, by the way, was a fat man, the text is sure to tell us. He stabs, stabs him with a sword. The so, sword goes so far in that the, the, I'm not kidding, his fat covers the hilt of the sword, and the Bible says, and the dung came out. I mean, that's just as colorful as it gets. Then you have Deborah, who is this prophetess, who, who is perhaps the only one of the judges to be even portrayed positively in any way in the course of this book. Deborah works alongside with an army commander named Barak and they defeat some enemies and there's a wonderful song of theirs in Judges chapter 5 that I commend to your reading. Then we have Gideon. Gideon who, right, he, de- he uh, uh, defeated the uh, Ammonites, I believe, um, with uh, just 300 men in his army. He started out with tens of thousands and the Lord whittles that down to 300 to defeat. But what we often don't see about Gideon is that he's a doubting, God-testing warrior who even after all of his military success in the might of the Lord makes an ephod, that is a priestly garment, that that ultimately uh, leads the people of Israel into idolatry. They begin worshiping this thing that he made. Then you have Jephthah. Jephthah is the son of a prostitute who makes a vow to God that that eventually costs him the life of his own daughter. And last of all, we have Samson. We like Samson as a character in the Bible. Big, strong guy, nice hair. Right? But what often we overlook are, are the faults in Samson's life. Samson is a lusting, arrogant, trickster, adulterer who disregards his vows to God for the love of a deceitful, uh, non-Israelite woman. Samson's a mess. Jephthah's a mess. Gideon's a mess. Deborah's okay. 
Ehud is a mess. And yet God uses all of these imperfect judges to deliver his people. In fact, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32, that the chapter of the, the hall of fame of faith in Hebrews says this, Gideon, Barak, who was the army commander under Deborah, Samson and Jephthah, all commended as those who through faith conquer kingdoms and enforce justice. The point here is this. God delivers his people temporarily through imperfect judges. And the point is this. One can be imperfect even sinful, but by faith and in faith still be a mighty force in the hand of God for his purposes. This is good news for we who struggle with sin. This is good news for we who struggle with our our human frailties that, that through our faith in a mighty God, he can take the mess of our lives and use it for his good purposes. I hope that as you read through Judges and you see these these people who who are just uh, constantly tripping all over themselves, that you would also see God's gracious work through these people of faith, even in spite of their failings. Finally, we come to the end of Judges, which sort of restarts the cycle of sin, judgment, repentance, deliverance. It goes back to sin, but we don't really come out of it at the end of Judges. So Judges ends in a very dark way. The final four chapters, uh, chapters of, of Judges are nothing short of, of depressing and devastating. And, and in these four or five chapters, there are two stories, both involving Levites. These men from the tribe of Levi that God had chosen to be his priests for worship in the tabernacle. In chapters 17 and 18, we have recounted a story of a Levite who gives up his role in Israel to be a personal priest for an idolater named Micah. And when Micah's camp, when his, his uh, uh, household camp is destroyed by the tribe of Dan, the Danites take and steal Micah's idols for themselves and install the Levite that was previously serving Micah to now be their priest before these carved images that they have stolen. In chapters 19, and 20, uh, 19 through 21, the, the last few chapters of another Levite and another horrible story, even worse than the Levite who uh, acts as a priest for these false gods. Here in chapters 19 through 21, we have another Levite who takes for himself a concubine. And as he's traveling through the region of Gebe- uh, to the city of Gebeah, a city in the tribe of Benjamin, he is taken in by an outsider, by a, a foreigner. And, 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 uh, and, and the foreigner just shows him hospitality and gives him a place to stay. But in the night, there in Gebeah, Uh, In a scene not unlike Genesis 19, where the men of Sodom demand to have relations with the angels that are staying with Lot, the men of Gebeah demand to have relations with this Levite who's staying with this man from another country. And in order to quell this violent mob, the Levite and the man who is hosting him send out the Levite's concubine, who is then violently ravaged all night long until she is dead. The Levite man, the next day, cuts up her body into 12 pieces and sends it to the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel asking for justice for his concubine. And what results from this act in Gebeah and the sending of her body parts to the different tribes is civil war in Israel that ultimately leaves the tribe of Benjamin desolate without any men to father that tribe moving forward. So then it's fitting that we come to to Judges Chapter 21, verse 25, the final verse of this book, which sets the tone, the very dark tone for the course of this book. We read there, in those days, 
There was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. You can't make this stuff up. I mean, the depths of depravity that, that Israel falls to in the course of judges are heartbreaking for any culture. But they also reveal to us the depths that, uh, of depravity that our own sinful hearts can take us to. And so we ought to, in some ways, read, read in Judges a warning. A warning not to follow our sinful urges. A warning not to follow our sinful desires. But rather to constantly, daily, regularly lean upon, press into God's grace uh, by repenting of our sins and trusting Him. The popular phrase goes something like this. There but by the grace of God go I. Christian people of Israel and judges are exactly who our sinful hearts want us to be. There but by the grace of God go we and judges. And so we do well to thank God for his grace, for his redeeming grace, for his saving grace, for even the common graces that he, he puts upon our lives to keep us from sins and to keep us from uh, following this sort of action, to following this sort of path in our lives. That's how judges ends. But even though it ends on a dark note, there's still much, much uh, uh, silver lining to the shadow that is this book. And much of the silver lining comes as we look for Christ, as we look for Jesus in the book of Judges, as we look for signs to his coming, uh, uh, reminders of his, of his eventual advent. As we read through Judges, we are reminded uh, of this, that Jesus is the Savior that gives an everlasting peace. Jesus is the Savior that gives an everlasting peace. The people of Israel are plagued with war throughout the course of Judges. What they need is peace. And peace comes in only short periods for them. Our need for peace is not primarily physical or political. Our need for peace, friends, is spiritual. Israel was only at war with their earthly enemies because they had placed themselves at odds with the sovereign God. And as God gives repenting Israelites and judges peace through temporary judges, he also goes one step further to give everlasting spiritual peace to anyone who trusts in his son, Jesus, our Savior. And so we read in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. The Apostle Paul writes this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who, is, who has been given to us. Friend, if you need spiritual peace in your life, if you are frustrated by the, the conviction of your conscience over the state of your sin, run to Jesus who gives you everlasting peace. Jesus is a Savior that gives us a peace that never ends, but also Jesus is the King who reigns in perfect righteousness. Judges ends this way. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The point of that is to say what Israel needs is a king. A king who will reign in righteousness. A king who will reign in justice. A king who will keep God's law and help the people to keep God's law themselves. Kings will come and go in the life of Israel, but there is only one king who reigns in perfect righteousness. And his name is Jesus of Nazareth. In Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 through 4, the author of Hebrews begins his, uh, ser- Hebrews is sort of an extended sermon. He begins his sermon this way. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, 
whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. He continues in verse 8. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions." Jesus is the king who reigns in righteousness. All others are are but a shadow, but a foretaste of what God's righteous, perfect king would look like. Jesus fulfills all of that in spades. And he reigns forever. He is the king who guides our hearts, who guards our hearts, who leads us to walk in righteousness as we follow him. But third and finally, Jesus is God's eternal deliverer for repenting sinners. God gives deliverance, temporary deliverance from the enemies of Israel as they repent of their sins and turn to him. But God gives everlasting deliverance for repenting sinners through his son, Jesus Christ. The way of salvation, that is forgiveness of your sins and peace with God, everlasting life, is by repentance from your sin, turning from your sin, to turn and move in the direction of God, and by faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He is our eternal deliverer for repenting sinners. And so we read in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 13, familiar verses to many of you. The Apostle Paul says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call upon him. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Jesus is God's eternal deliverer for repenting sinners. And being saved from your sin is as simple as turning from it, confessing Jesus as Lord, trusting in your heart God raised him from the dead, giving your life to him as Savior and Lord. And knowing this, that God loves saving repenting sinners. God delights in, pe- in saving people who turn from their sins to trust in Christ. And so we read in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. But he is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Friends, in the book of Judges, I am reminded of a God who loves his people so much that he endures with great patience their disobedience and their sin so that he can bring them to a place of repentance, so that he might deliver them from their sin. The cycle of the people of Israel in Judges, and a cycle that continues throughout the rest of the Old Testament, it's a story of our lives as well. God has blessed us by creating us in his image to know him and to love him, to worship him. We have responded to the blessing of his goodness in creating us in his image with sin. We have disobeyed him. We've run from him. We've set up other authorities, other kings in our lives. And God allows the just punishment for our sin, which is death, to creep up on every one of us as a warning, as a calling to say, turn from your sin and turn back to me. 
And he gives us that perfect person, himself in flesh, in the person of Jesus, to whom we turn to. The one who paid for our sins on the cross in his death. The one who paved the way for our justification in his resurrection. So that by faith in him, we can enter into everlasting peace with God. And and everlasting salvation because of it. When you read Judges, you should see the gospel all over over the place. God's work to save sinners through repentance and faith in Him. Uh, A gospel that is fulfilled in Jesus and that blows up in the church in Acts and throughout the rest of the New Testament. It's a gospel that we get to celebrate together tonight as a church as we share uh, in the Lord's Supper together. On the night that He would be arrested and betrayed...